0: For the first time, we had this really large uh, load of of evidence, you know, perpetrator evidence documentation, which we to this day are using, you know, which I myself am using and most probably will be using it until the end of my life, you know. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false
1: tribunal and indictments false indictments.
0: Such abhorrent
2: crimes
3: must not go unpunished.
0: Proceedings will be long and complex.
2: Hi, and welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts, your
1: international justice podcast with me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg, for this episode, which we're doing in partnership with Justice Info. We will air it around the 25th commemoration of the 1995 Srebrenica massacre. And we're taking a look at the legacy uh, of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which we will probably refer to throughout as the ICTY So we've got this stellar
2: cast of people to chat to. We've got Eva Vukicic, war crimes and paramilitary researcher. She's joining us again. The last time we met you, you, we were walking a dog that you were dog sitting and we were in a graveyard and that was fun. Uh, But now you're Dr. Eva. Congratulations. Thank you, Frau Doctor. Woo!
1: And we also have by video link Jennifer Trehan, clinical professor at NYU Center for Global Affairs, who co-authored articles with Eva on the ICTY legacy. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Good morning. And calling in from Sarajevo uh, for the Bosnian perspective, we have Hikmet Kacic, a genocide scholar at the Institute for Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks. Hi, Hikmet.
0: Hello.
2: As always in these socially distanced times of video meetings, it's not necessarily going to sound as perfect as we would like to make it, but we're doing our best. So, you know, give us a bit of a break if it sounds a little bit odd.
1: Because of my knowledge of of the ICTY is skewed by my work here and five years in Belgrade, why don't we turn this around and don't do stephopedia as we tend to do and do Janetpedia and tell us what we need to know about the ICTY. And Janet's looking very panicked at this point.
2: Oh, my God. What do I know? Okay. Um, Established in the early 1990s, war was actually still raging in the former Yugoslavia during that time. And maybe if you asked yourself what chances of success it had, you'd say, you know, little to nothing. But since then, I mean, despite the lack of detainees right at the beginning and the complexity of the cases. Since then, they've managed to put on trial everybody on their list that they wanted to arrest, which is a big thing, um, including the most high-profile people like Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Serbia, former president of Serbia, who died while on trial, but also Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic, the political and military head of the Republika Srpska. There were landmark trials held on rape, sexual violence. Um, They defined the events at Srebrenica as uh, genocide, where about 8,000 men and boys were killed.
1: Yeah, is that okay? Yeah, that's a very fine summary. Uh, Now Hmm. we have the question of the ICTY legacy, and we have a kind of question that we want to ask before, which is basically... How do you assess the failure and success of a court? That we're talking about legacy, but what are the kind of benchmarks? How do you, how would you look at a court to see if it's successful? Eva,
3: let me start by saying that how do you as, as, as sort of um, uh, assess a court and its failures or accomplishments is really a million million dollar question. And I think when the ICTY was first established, no one really had a clear idea about these benchmarks and about how we are supposed to judge these successes or failures. And since then, there has been no consensus. There is no consensus in sort of in the concerned community about what these um, uh, benchmarks or what these assessments should look like. And that, I think, has caused quite a lot of disagreements and quite a lot of uh, conflict as to is it a success? Is it a failure? What does it mean to be a success or a failure? So I think only now maybe at the ICTY, but also elsewhere, we're starting to see clearer ideas about what does it mean to succeed or fail if you are an in international
1: court. And in your paper, you write about kind of judicial goals. Can you talk a bit about um, what those could be and how the ICTY is done on that? And then we'll ask uh, Jennifer about the other what we call uh, social transformative uh, goals and see what those are or what those were defined as and how we how the ICTY is doing with them?
3: Sure. Um, I would say that these, I, I would consider them, for example, core goals, so to say. So one could think about fair trials. So this is absolutely indispensable. So to investigate the, the key events and the key violations from a certain uh, period of conflict, to get people that are at the highest levels responsible for uh, a certain violations, but also at the same time to try to get a representativeness Uh, in court, in the sense that we don't focus only on one type of violation and completely disregard uh, another. So I would also say that it would be important to, to try to get a broad representation of civilian authorities and military and police and paramilitary, so to have a sense that it covers a wide uh, range of violations. I would say that the successes are very often measured also in number of cases, you know, and we discussed in our article, and that's maybe not the best way to go about it. But often you would say this and this many cases have been prosecuted. And that's, uh, that's a success.
1: Jennifer, can we talk a bit about the social transformative goals, peace, reconciliation? Why was that suddenly expected of this court? And can you actually expect that of any court?
4: I, I would say these aren't goals and they, they shouldn't be goals and I think that's where we maybe uh, got off the wrong track if we thought too much of the court. I, I guess I shared the views uh, with Eva that essentially these courts are courts and that's what you really want them to be. You want to look at their prosecutions, um, having victims and witnesses testify, rendering solid jurisprudence, um, prosecuting perpetrators from all sides, um, establishing a solid historical record. These kind of are, are the more traditional um, goals. And But I think it's when we go beyond that that we get more into shaky ground. So if people think it's going to transform the political dialogue um, in the region, um, if there's going to suddenly be one shared narrative of the facts. um, No, that's not going to happen. So I think we got down this path. In part, the resolution said it would, wherefore, you know, the tribunal would advance international peace and security. So that's one of the first things I don't think we necessarily should ask of tribunals. I happen to think that was in the founding resolution. Only to say they were under Chapter Seven, and, but anyway, people took it. You know, it has to advance international peace and security, which is very, very hard to prove. I actually think the tribunal did, but I don't think we should um, ask this of tribunals. I say the tribunal did, because some very high-level perpetrators were then on the run um, and certainly marginalized from having a continuing role in political or military affairs. So I think that did help, and that also helped deter. But deterrence is another big claim, and I just think um, you know, the tribunals, this was our first tribunal since Nuremberg. And if it didn't deter in the early years, I think we should hardly be surprised. You know, where we get really in shaky ground is thinking everybody will be reconciled after trials, or, you know, there'll be no denial, and there'll be a single a shared narrative. And that I think has to be done by additional transitional justice in the future. Um, you know, and, you um, Reconciliation wasn't in the founding resolution, but then we see some ICTY officials say, you know, this tribunal will achieve reconciliation. I think those kind of big claims should um, not be made.
2: Hikmet, we want to also hear from on the ground in Bosnia. What, what do you see as the reality of those lofty goals? What, what do people on the ground actually make of the ICTY?
0: Well, I mean, firstly, let's remember that the ICTY was formed um, two years before Srebrenica occurred. So basically it was formed because of the crimes committed in the camps in northwestern Bosnia, which caused international outrage, and also uh, because of the siege of Sarajevo, you know, where you had sniper fire and artillery bombardment on a daily basis. So I think the, the initial crimes from 1992 were the, one of the... Primary reasons why ICTY was was uh, formed, and that's why Dushko Tadić was the first guy to be uh, you know tried in front of the ICTY. So uh, later on, I mean the initial the initial uh, aim of the ICTY was to to try for the crimes committed in 1992. Later on, after Srebrenica, then that's when the focus of the prosecution uh, shifted from, from these uh, crimes from '92 into the crimes from 1995. It gave a much more, let's say, internationalized uh, character, the, the Srebrenica genocide, due to the fact that, you know, the UN was involved and you had all this other government uh, involvement and so on. Um, when it comes to, to the legacy of the ICTY, I think the, the most of the Bosnians are disappointed in two, for two reasons. Firstly, that um, the, the main perpetrators uh, who were guilty for the crimes committed, for the mass atrocities committed in Bosnia, were apprehended uh, rev- relatively late. Uh, you know, uh, Milosevic on one side, but you know, Karadzic and Mladic, basically everybody in Bosnia knew that they were hiding somewhere around here. Uh, and uh, they, were, they were arrested quite late, even though you know, most people knew that, that he, he, they were under the protection of the Serbian state. Uh, which later on proved to be the case, especially uh, with, with Mladic in question. Um, the, the biggest, I think, um, uh, the most positive aspect of the ICTY, which the Bosnians really, really cherish, is the fact that the 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 most important members of the Bosnian Serb leadership, political, military, and police, uh, from from Bosnia but also from Serbia, were for the first time in history put on trial. And this is something which I, as a Bosniak, uh, uh, really, uh, you know, respect the fact that, you know, after so many years of, of uh, you know, Second World War persecution, survival, and so on and so forth, for the first time in history, we are able to, you know, uh, according to international law and international documentation, show that certain crimes were committed uh, against the Bosniak people. Because, you know, we are, in fact, a small minority in the middle of Europe. So it it means really a a large thing to us that, you know, you have this uh, international legitimacy to say that, you know, genocide was committed against your people in in the Drina Valley. So uh, that and also the fact that uh, for the first time we had this really large uh, load of of evidence, you know, perpetrator evidence documentation, which we to this day are using, you know, which I myself am using and most probably will be using it until the end of my life, you know writing and, and uh, according to this archival these are archives which we uh, if it wasn't for the icty which basically sent in the s4 to Luka and to Zvornik and to you know other places and, and and basically you know took out these documentations we as researchers would never get our hands on these documents and some of these documents such as you know the crisis uh, committee staff uh, records from Pocha, from Visegrad, from towns in eastern Bosnia, which were, you know, sent over the border in 98, 99. We will never be able to see them again, uh, which were hidden, which are still hidden in Serbia today, um, which were, you know, moved on across the Drina. So, you know, some of these so these this archival materials, which, you know, even the prosecution did not use to, to, to the maximum extent, you know, due to, to the fact that they couldn't use everything which they wanted to, uh, leaves, uh, leaves us, uh, the researchers, a lot of, you know, area to, to do. But it also uh, is a very important thing for local prosecution, uh, prosecutors in Bosnia to use it, which they unfortunately, unfortunately right now are not using it to that extent. Uh, the, the prosecution office in, in Serbia and in, other, uh, in the region, even less, in, even in a lesser extent. But, you know, definitely according to the archival documents which are available online you are able to you know um, put up a puzzle of this huge mosaic of, of this criminal enterprise
1: I'm going to um, just loop back a little for the all the I'm going to do the stephopedia thing. Dusko Tadic was the first man put on trial by the ICTY and he was one of the guards in one of the camps in the Prijedor area which is um, what Hikmet referred to. Also, Foja and Visegrad are two uh, cities in eastern Bosnia which are not but probably should be a byword for some of the atrocities that happened in the Bosnian War and a lot of internationally it's only Srebrenica that is known as the worst of the worst but Visegrad and Foggia are definitely high up there. High up there. And um, Hikmet also referred to the Drina, which is the uh, border river between Bosnia and Serbia. So when things go over the Drina, that basically means they go into Serbia, not to be seen again. Now, in one of the articles I saw that Jennifer and Eva did together, there is a remark that the ICTY, as we, as Hikmet also referred, did a lot of high-level prosecuting and the high level of the Bosnian Serb military and uh, political life went on trial, but it's not really helping reconciliation because local actors are not put on trial. Can you kind of explain what the situation uh, on the ground is like?
3: I I can start the answer and then I'm sure Hikmet can uh, can jump in. I think there's uh, differences in how you approach cases for high-level perpetrators and sort of lower-level perpetrators, and both have their value in the sense that by prosecuting high-level perpetrators, you say something about the state system that was in place. You say something about the systematic nature of the violence, that it wasn't just something that, you know, three guys randomly made an agreement about and then committed the violence. But on the other hand, and this was my experience in Bosnia, a lot of the time when you would meet survivors from camps and things like that, they would make the point that You know, it's all great if you prosecute these high level people like Milosevic, for example, but I actually want the guy who raped me. I actually want the guy who beat me up senseless uh, in a camp. And when you're a prosecutor, I think it's really difficult to make these choices because I think we should not forget that there's so many potential perpetrators to look at. Thousands upon thousands. People who could credibly be investigated. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily guilty, it may mean that they're guilty, but there's not a sufficient evidence to prove that. But I mean, thousands upon thousands of people in the former Yugoslavia that could credibly be investigated. And I think it's important to make the point that no court, no system, no state is able to digest, quote unquote, that amount um, of uh, of material. So that, I think, is a point that is important to make And on the side of sort of social repair or reconciliation. I'm not sure that that it's fair to expect uh, a reconciliation to take place. I mean, it's great if it does, but I think if someone, you know, raped me, took my dad into a camp and burned my house and took all my stuff, I would not want to reconcile and I would not want to be told to reconcile. So I think it's completely fair to demand that and to also have a sense that, you know, in the United States today, there is a visible disagreement about the causes of the civil war, which happened 150 years ago. So I think also we should have some humble goals and humble understandings of what what it means to live in a society where people disagree uh, so i think it's just important to have some facts that we can all agree upon but but to to dream of some sense what jennifer was saying that we're all going to agree about exactly what happened I, i'm not sure that that's possible
1: and uh, jennifer one of the one of the things that the, was also in the tribunal's goal is to put this kind of uh, unmovable historical record that people couldn't disagree on do you think that that's uh,
4: well happened? i i think they put it there um, and people can look at the historical record those who want to have the solid record they can go to the documentation center in Potochari. Um they can go online they have these resources but you know there are certain segments of the population who don't want to do that who who won't do this so um, yes they've created the solid archive um, and uh, we have their solid judgments you have the scorpions video it doesn't mean that's going to end denial or different versions of the truth. Eva, we could have a whole debate, is there one version of the truth? But we definitely see different versions of the truth in the former Yugoslavia. I mean, one of this, you know, there never was the National Truth Commission, so there were proposals for RECOM, but it never happened. So you only have a very small Truth Commission effort. So there's a lot of transitional justice that one could have imagined in the former Yugoslavia. P.S., one could imagine it in the U.S. as well. We also don't do tra- transitional justice very well. Um, and and a lot of these tools haven't been used. So we do see very much different narratives in the former Yugoslavia. But going back to expectations, I don't think it was ever reasonable to think, okay, we'll have trials in The Hague, Netherlands, and everyone you know, will be reconciled or have one shared narrative. Hikmet, we've heard people describe a little bit about
2: local courts, which are now potentially seen as the carriers of the legacy of the ICTY, are they actually managing to continue the work? Uh,
0: to some extent, yes. Uh, well, you know, the, the situation in, in, in Bosnia as a former socialist country is something that we need to keep in mind. Um, you know, the socialist legal culture in, in this part of Europe is something which is still heavily embedded in the you know legal uh, culture in, in, in the institutions here. So it's it, it's really hard to expect from people who, uh, you know, grew up in that socialist legal formalism to today, uh, you know, uh, use new Western, you know, Hague criteria in prosecuting war crimes. Thus, uh, if you look at the the court of BH, which is a state court in Bosnia, uh, established by the Office of the High Representative, you'll see that, that the best track record of the court of BH was during the time when uh, international judges and international prosecutors were working there they were voted out of the country by uh, influence from uh, Milorad Dodik's party the Bosnian Serb strongman in the part of the Bosnian Serb republic uh, due to the fact that these prosecutors were not only prosecuting war crimes but also prosecuting and investigating corruption cases which in fact was a problem which all three sides let's call them so a problem with this because these were independent international uh, prosecutors who were going to uh, investigate not only war crimes but uh, corruption charges, uh, money laundering, trafficking and so on and so forth in the, you know in the whole, whole entire country. So we can say that after 2012 when the last international employees uh, left or when, when they when they kept some sort of uh, consultory uh, status, that's when when the track record of the of the court of bH you know started going slowly down. But nevertheless, these local courts have a really good uh, number of cases, which, which they, if, if, again, it all depends from, from prosecutor to prosecutor, from judge to judge. There's no uh, one defined, let's say, you know, line to say that, you know, everything is good. You're, it's all individual cases based on individual prosecutors who are prosecuting the crimes. Uh, and definitely people with the most experience, people like Ibro Bulic, who, who was the first man to prove the genocide at the court of BH, He's, he's a man with, with integrity and with a long, uh, you know, uh, track record of, of, of war crimes cases for the last you know, 25 years. So it all depends on, on who, who is there. And, you know, just to add on something which which Ivo was saying a earlier, of course, the the main issue with local people here is that they want the main perpetrators who they know to be prosecuted. You know. So, you know, if you ask a person from Foccia who Radislav Bergenin is, uh, they wouldn't know because he was in Kraina, you know, he was a political figure in Kraina and so on. Even people in Kraina most probably at that time in 92 did not know who Bergerin was, but they definitely knew who Dusko Tadic was in Kozarets. They knew him because he was infamous for the fact that he killed his best man. You know, so, And these personal facts, which were, which were established by the ICTY, uh, confirming the narratives which, which we heard during the war and after the war, is, I think, one of the most important legacies of the ICTY.
3: I just wanted to jump in for one minute because Hikmet was referring to a period when I worked at the prosecutor's office at the state court, which is about the time before the international sort of moved out. And I would say, and this is something that Jennifer and I write about in our chapter as well, is that the international presence was moved or removed too early because I remember during the time that David Trendeman was running the prosecutor's office, it was going pretty well. And there was a certain momentum and there were serious people and there was a systematic nature to the work. And I think a part of that systematic nature and organization of the work was lost after some of the uh, international colleagues uh, left. But as Hikmet was saying, Ibro Bulic is an excellent example that there are multiple very qualified and very capable people. It's The problem, I think, is just that they're not necessarily the ones who are making the important decisions about sort of strategic uh, directions. There's too few Ibro Bulics uh, uh, working in the judiciary in Bosnia.
4: I, I will maybe just add a teeny bit on um, not... As much the implementation of the state court, but the the design, I think, is a very good model of a hybrid tribunal because initially it was much more international, then it was phased out, and then the idea was to leave an ongoing domestic war crimes chamber. And that is a really good model because if you compare it to something like Sierra Leone Special Court, while Sierra Leone Special Court did a lot of very important work, when it finished, it just finished. I mean, yeah, it has some legacy, you know, a little bit surprising projects, but it closed its doors. And the same will happen with the Cambodia Tribunal. So when it's done with its trials, it just closes the door. But the advantage of the state court design, maybe it didn't work as perfectly as it it should have, is that it's an international hybrid that phases out to less hybrid to no hybrid, and an ongoing war crimes chamber and then cases can be done in the future and there's so many cases left to do that this is very very important it just needs the support um that it you know required to continue this very very important work but it's it's a i think a really ideal model for hybrid tribunals that we should consider in other situations where they are set up
1: Talking about other situations, one of the reasons I was really, really wanted to do this podcast also for the 25th uh, Srebrenica commemoration is because we've been doing a lot of this Rohingya genocide case at the International Court of Justice. And we met all these activists. We have a podcast with these uh, Rohingya activists who are all fighting to get this case uh, of genocide and fighting for accountability. And I keep thinking of Bosnia where the state where there's the most transitional justice efforts thrown at it at the past 20 years And I was thinking at some point of doing a joint podcast with these Rohingya activists and maybe Srebrenica activists. But then I thought those poor Rohingya people will be so discouraged because Bosnia is, you know, so much effort was thrown into every kind of transitional justice instrument known to man is put into Bosnia. and, And where are we now 25 years after with Srebrenica? What can a court really bring in a situation like this?
0: So, yeah, uh, one of the main reasons why why um, this wasn't a sec, you know, I wouldn't say it wasn't a success in total in Bosnia. I mean, there is definitely a lot of success that you could see. It's still peaceful in Bosnia. You know, people mostly are going around, you know, with their jobs. You know, you have... Bosniaks, Bosniak, Serbs and Croats still working together in, in institutions, they had a joint army and so on. I wouldn't say that there's no that, that, that it's a, a total failure, but what we can see actually is that the situation in Bosnia highly depends on the situation in the region. So if, if you have a, a very negative oriented Serbia, as you have with Vučić right now, then you'll you'll feel it in Bosnia as well. Same thing with Croatia. Um, you know, right before the Perlić case, you had you had this huge counter-narrative efforts by Kolinda's government to prove that you know Bosnia is a is a hub for you know terrorists or whatever. You know, saying that there are ten thousand um, jihadists who came from Syria living on the border with the EU. On the other hand, you have uh, state institutions in Serbia which are helping war criminals in Bosnia and at the Hague to prove that they're innocent. So, so that's why, that's why we have a huge problem in, in dealing with genocide deniers because 10 years, 10, 15 years ago, we were dealing with, uh, you know, Darko Trifunovic and some other trolls on, 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 the internet who had blogs writing about Srebrenica. Now we are dealing with high class publicly funded deniers. Which are, you know, which are now having international uh, backing, no, not backing, but let's say support from some semi-academic scholars and things like that, but who are nevertheless creating a narrative through uh, Serbian academic media, uh, political circles, and so on. So that's why we have a huge problem with genocide denial on the 25th anniversary. So uh, when, like when we talk about uh, the, 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 the transitional justice um, process, we had the 2004 Srebrenica Commission which uh, you know published a report which wasn't good, which wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. It was a very minimalistic report, but nevertheless, it was the first time that the Bosnian Serb authorities recognized that genocide was committed in Bosnia and so on and so forth. But however, two years ago, the the, the Bosnian Serb Assembly annulled this report. So everybody in the Assembly, except for the Bosnian Democrats, voted to annul the report. So this report is now. Uh, deleted and now they they have formed a new commission made up of international scholars, semi-academic scholars, to investigate the truth of Serbian suffering in Srebrenica, but also to create a new narrative, a new commission for the the siege of Sarajevo. So these are the two main uh, narratives which they want to change in 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 uh, in international academia: the, the narrative that Sarajevo was under siege and the narrative that. Genocide was committed in Srebrenica. These are funded by, you know, supported, funded and supported by state, academic, political and media institutions.
3: I I would just like to add into that for, for a minute and say that again here, I think it comes down to sort of criteria. What is a success or what is a failure? On the one hand, I think when it comes to Srebrenica specifically, no one claims or maybe only people at the very, very political margins that nothing happened. And I think that in itself, I mean, it might seem, uh, uh, you know, like not very much, but I actually think that a lot of the evidence at the ICTY and in the local uh, courts as well has trickled down into public space, where there are disagreements, like Hikmet is saying, about how many people and what are the circumstances, but no one serious will say nothing happened. And that's a low level uh, accomplishment, but I would say still it's something. Uh, what frustrates me, on the other hand, is that anything that isn't Srebrenica or maybe Priedor, no one knows about, really. And there were at least several dozen municipalities where we should know a little bit or we should talk a little bit about. Uh, so I think that's a little bit something that I would like to see changed maybe in the in the years that come.
2: Maybe I can just bring the discussion down a little bit just to one small question, which is but people actually survived Srebrenica or those who were close to those from Srebrenica. what do they actually think about what the tribunal has achieved?
0: I think in, in, in regard to Srebrenica, most of them are quite happy with, with how the, the hate tribunal you know, dealt with the whole uh, Srebrenica case, especially with the fact that, you know, the, the main perpetrators from the Zvornik and Bratnas brigades uh, and from the Drina Corps, plus you know Karadzic and Mladic were convicted for for Srebrenica. I think the mo- most of the disappointment comes from people from elsewhere. So you could see in the in the you know for the genocide charges being uh, not not passed for uh, you know Rogatica, Kotorvaros and and other towns, which uh, you know really saw this huge uh, genocidal campaign in 1992. I think this is the the biggest uh, disappointment by by. Uh, by by the survivors from these other towns and there's another thing we need to keep in mind regarding Srebrenica which I really often want to want to emphasize the people who were who were inside the enclave in 1995 were not only people from Srebrenica Srebrenica enclave was a safe zone for bosniaks from the whole eastern bosnia you had people from 13 different municipalities so in some sense these people are uh, are happy that they are 1995 um uh, uh, crime was recognized, but I have friends who, who survived the Bretonauts camps in 19, 1992, Zvornik, Visegrad, and so on. And, and so they are double survivors, basically. People survived, you know, crimes in 1992, ran away from Visegrad, managed to escape, came to Srebrenica, then survived the fall of Srebrenica. Uh, so in some sense, they are satisfied that the 1995 events are, are recognized, but then they ask the question, what about 92? And they have the sense that the 1992 events are in some way uh, sidelined.
1: To wrap, it's not a discussion that I think we can ever really wrap up. Um, But we've learned that benchmarks are really hard to set. Uh, The international community likes to aim very high and not be very practical about what it promises. And that in terms maybe of judicial successes, there are some successes, but still on the ground... It's very difficult um, to see those successes and also to kind of think about, can a court really ever satisfy victims? I had this lovely quote, and I think in an article that Jennifer did where they had Jeffrey Nice, where he said, a court is not meant to reconcile people like if you if you take somebody to court over a robbery the court is not meant to reconcile the robber with the person who was robbed it's supposed to be a legal process and and why we are thinking that it's something else is 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 amazing so i want to thank you all very much for giving your views and giving also higmet an idea of the situation on the ground and what people in bosnia think but we don't let people
2: go just by asking them some normal questions. We also ask them some other questions, don't we, Stephanie?
1: Exactly, we usually have three asymmetrical haircuts questions at the end, which Jennifer, I know you like to be prepared, but I didn't send them to you because the idea is that you answer spontaneously. Uh, but first, uh, this is something you can probably jump onto. What did we miss in the discussion?
4: Well, I think uh, we can also add maybe the historical perspective. I mean, I had this tremendous challenge that After Nuremberg and Tokyo, like we had no tribunals, like we just didn't do the field of international justice. So it was really our, you know, our our test case, how do we do a tribunal? And given it was the test case, I think it did remarkably well. We, you know, no one knew how to do any of this. And now it has set a model and now there are many other tribunals. And I think in the historical perspective, it gets tremendous credit for the field of international justice. This is why the Rohingya victims are demanding justice because they've seen it is a possibility.
2: Anything we we left out,
3: Eva or Hikmet? I would just like to say that I would like to continue this effort in the practitioner community and in the academic community to start uh, uh, really systematically studying successes and failures and then try to really uh, uh, use that in the efforts in the future, for example, in the case of Syria or in the case of uh, Myanmar, And also for uh, skeptics, um, I would say that, you know, it might not be perfect. And for now, the Rohingya, for example, don't seem to have an avenue uh, for justice. But, you know, there's no statutory limitations and there's nothing to say that in 10 or 20 years, things may look differently. And I think the
1: ICTY shows us that as well. Hikmet, do you have anything that we should have uh, addressed that we didn't?
0: Uh, I think in some cases, we need to, you know, uh, keep in mind the political actors and situation at the time when the ICTY was being formed. I mean, uh, I don't want to be a pessimist, but imagine if Putin was in power in 1983. I, I have, I mean, I don't have any faith that the ICTY would have been formed. Uh, it was the, the fact that Russia at that time was quite uh, weak and, you know, with the whole Cold War, Iron Curtain falling down, that, you know, they didn't really care much about what was going on in the Balkans, whereas today you have a totally different different situation. Um, another thing we, we uh, you know, what, what Eva and Jennifer said earlier, the the the, the amount of uh, work which is being done um, in, currently, I mean, uh, by the no, uh, local national courts, Uh, Myanmar, not so much, but in in Germany, we had uh, a few cases of of Syrian uh, victims who, who, you know, similar to, and this is fascinating, similar to the Dushko Tadic case. Uh, In 1995, a victim recognized Dushko Tadic in the streets of of, uh, Munich, and she she reported to the police. So that's when they got the idea, let's arrest uh, Dushko Tadic and Nikola Jorgic and the other cases. So similar to this, uh, Syrian uh, victims... Uh, recognize their tortures from from prison and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, and now we have a persecution of of people responsible from the Syrian regime. So I think the the use of these national courts are something which, apart from the ICC, are going to be the future of uh, international criminal justice.
2: And another question that we like to ask, well, actually, we're changing the question you might have had an earlier version Eva, when we ask people what do people get wrong about your jobs now we're going to ask everybody let's see whether we get any answers are there any failures that you would like to share with us about your job that you would like other people to learn from what have you really learned from it if you would have made a mistake that you'd do, like to do share you have
1: a favorite mistake
3: Uh, My favorite mistake. Oh, this might go actually to people who are writing PhDs or just about starting. Make sure that you have a list of all the people who helped you along the way to be able to thank them at the end, because in year four, you won't remember it, you know, and I think that's something that I wish someone had told me. Just remember people that help you so you can put them in acknowledgements. It's difficult to uh, chase those names. You know, it's like, oh, who was that two years ago? So I think that was a mistake and it would have made the last days of my PhD a little bit easier.
1: Hikmet, do you have anything where you're like, oh, I thought it was like this when I went into the field and now I realize I was either naive or um, just wrong in in my own misconceptions and I now understand people better because I've learned this.
0: Yeah, so the first thing is that uh, don't ever trust your sources 100%. <laughs> so, so you know, like um, you know, I, I read I read hundreds of of witness testimonies in which you know people said I saw white eagles here, I saw uh, Arkansmen men here and there and so on. And you know, this is something which I talked to Eva so, so many times. In the end, you you realize that there were no white eagles or Arkans in the in that town, but rather these were you know, members of the special police reserve force who. You know, these victims could not recognize, but due to media reports and so on, they started constructing certain, um, you know, identifications by themselves. So uh, this is something which, which I learned and, uh, on several cases in which I to this day still use. I double check each and every source, which I have multiple times.
1: And just so for context, sorry, the, para, the uh, White Eagles and the men that uh, Higman is talking about, those are all paramilitary formations, which is also why he checked with Eva, because Eva knows every paramilitary no, formation. No, Eva doesn't. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> Eva, <laughs> Eva
2: would very much like to. Eva is trying. <laughs> Eva is trying, that's for sure. Mm. And Jennifer, do you have a mistake that you'd like to show yeah, us? Yeah, I
4: guess earlier on in my career, um, I, I probably wrote a lot about you know, forms of international justice for countries. A little bit too much in a bubble of what politics will allow and there are just so many political limitations you know we're we're obviously not talking about creating a Syria tribunal or a Myanmar tribunal through the ICC so now we have to see okay what what can be done Um, but at the same time I think it's it's important not to give up the big dreams so you have to have a foot in reality of what politics will allow and I try to teach this to my students as well but don't forget the big dreams and, and still say, no, someday a Syria tribunal preserve the evidence for it. So it is kind of this combination that I probably didn't have right in the early years of, of dream big and understand the political realities, but don't stop dreaming big.
1: Finally, our, um, we kept the last question the same, which is what are you reading, watching, listening to that you can recommend? And uh, we'll go uh, reverse order.
4: Um, So we'll uh, ask Jennifer What I've been consumed with doing has been simply rereading the proofs of my book that I know by the time this broadcast is aired will hopefully have since been published. Um, And it is entitled Existing Legal Limits to Security Council Veto Power in the Face of Atrocity Crimes. And it's coming out, I I hope, in late June by Cambridge University Press.
2: Great. Well, we'll look out for that. And what about you, Hikmat?
0: Uh, there, are, there are two things right now which I'm reading and, and watching. Firstly, I, I love reading uh, local judgments, so I have a huge, uh, you know, <laughs> stock of, of localized uh, local judgments from courts. I'm reading them before bedtime. And the other thing is I'm watching currently a BBC uh, series called The Salisbury Poisonings, which are about the FSB poisoning of, of, of a former FSB uh, double agent. And it's quite good. So, you know, I'm still in the process. I've passed first season, episode three.
2: And uh, Eva? I'm going to uh,
3: recommend something that I've already read a while ago, but I think it speaks to uh, really well to our discussion today. Uh, So one is a book called Some Kind of Justice, by Diane Ardentlicher, I would say one of the best things that came out on the ICTY, she systematically goes through many of the issues that we were talking about today. So for anyone who is interested in this kind of stuff in more depth, I really recommend that book. And another thing, also, I watched it a while ago, but I think it's really great and I would recommend it. It's a Netflix documentary called Devil Next Door, and it's about John Demianyuk. And I think it's really well done because it goes far beyond the story of Demianyuk himself. Uh, It uses a lot of archival material, but I think it raises deep, important questions about the nature of prosecutions and the limits of trials and, you know, the the limits of what can be accomplished by this endeavor at all. Um, And I think for anyone who is interested in this, I would really highly recommend it.
1: Well, thank you all so much for taking the time out and all these different technical things that we're making you do um, in Sarajevo and in New York. So thanks very much for talking to us. And we will keep uh, having this conversation about what international justice means, uh, what it means to victims, what it could mean or actually does do.
2: Great. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank Thank you. Thanks.
1: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in The Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating
4: and spread the word.